Hear now a reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke, the seventh chapter, beginning at the 36th verse. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven, and she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this one who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a great joy to be here with you here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, a church I've known for many years, and many of my friends have come out of this church or participate in it, and it's a great joy to be in Nashville and at Belmont University, and I'm grateful for all the ties that bind us together. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, descend your Holy Spirit on us gathered here. Speak through me, if necessary, in spite of me and always beyond me, that your word might be heard this day. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. For many years, there was a psychiatrist who overcharged and provided not very good advice. Her name was Lucy. In the comic strip, Peanuts, she charged a nickel all along. was overpriced. Charlie Brown kept coming back for advice from time to time. One day he came to her and he said, My life is a failure. Nothing seems to work. I just don't have anything go right. Lucy said, Charlie Brown, life is like a deck of cards. Not everybody can be the aces and kings and queens. Some people have to be the tens and nines and eights. Charlie Brown says, I guess so. And then she says, I think I've got it, Charlie Brown. You're the two of clubs. And Charlie Brown looks at her and he says, I doubt it. Even the two of clubs takes a trick now and then. <laughs> Ever feel like the two of clubs? 
In the midst of what I call multiple pandemics, COVID-19, heightened attention to racial injustice, economic disruptions, political polarization, mental health challenges, it's easy for us to be discouraged and to wonder if there's any point to it all. We feel a bit like the two of clubs, just looking around, feeling discouragement, feeling despair. And all of a sudden, our sights get reduced. Our hopes begin to shrink. And we just want to survive. We just want to get through the day. We feel like life is a disaster. We even fear, perhaps, that we live in a world that ultimately doesn't make sense. That it's a nightmare of absurd unmeaning. Charles Taylor in his diagnosis of our condition in late modernity, put it this way, at the beginning of modernity, he said, everybody believed in God. If you didn't really think God was active in the world, you were more likely a deist than an atheist. He said, at the end of modernity, all of us have become practical atheists. We may say we believe in God, but we don't expect anything to happen. We don't expect God to be present. We think all of life is lived in this world. It's a haunting description, a haunting description of, for my own life. I, I think of Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, who said she wanted to live her life in a way that wouldn't make sense if God doesn't exist. The sad reality is my life makes way too much sense on too many days, regardless of whether God exists or whether God is present and active in the world. The real key question, I think, for us is, do we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and God poured the Holy Spirit out at Pentecost? Do we have a sense of Easter hope and Pentecostal power? Because if we do, then we ought to be expecting God to be at work and we ought not ever feel like the two of clubs because we know that God intervenes and works in your life and my life and all of our lives and this church's work and ministry and in this community that God can take our despair and our discouragement and transform it if we believe. Our story from Luke's Gospel this morning points to the predicament because it's way too easy for many of us to feel like the Pharisee. We get to a point in that discouragement of what other people are doing in the world, what's going on in the world, and we learn how to sit in judgment of others and what's going on. And when the woman comes in, Pharisees appalled. Doesn't Jesus know who this woman is? If he were a prophet, surely he'd know and he wouldn't be responding to her the way he's doing. She's not one of us. She's not one of our kind of people. And so then Jesus tells the story and asks about which one would be more grateful, the one who'd been canceled of a small debt or the one who'd been canceled of a large debt. The Pharisee sees the point, but not the larger picture. Because it's the woman who has discovered God's forgiveness and who responds with an extravagant outpouring of tears and anointing Jesus from her alabaster ointment. And so you see the contrast between those who've gotten to a point of not expecting much and someone whose life has been transformed. You see, once you begin to discover the power of Easter hope, once you really believe in the power of Pentecost 
And you see that outpouring and you see the way God can take life and turn it upside down in beautiful and powerful ways. Extraordinary things can happen. This past Friday, my wife and I were interviewing prospective students for Belmont for a presidential scholarship. It was humbling to see all these kids in high school, what they've already accomplished and their dreams for the future. I kept thinking to myself, can I be like you if I ever grow up? There was one particular woman who I found quite moving. She'd flown from California, from Central California for the interview. She began to talk about her life and she said, well, when I was eight, my parents divorced, my father became homeless, my mother became an alcoholic. And she said, I learned that I was going to have to be the parent for myself and my younger sibling. Her essay was entitled, Empty Bottles on the Floor about discovering as as an adolescent the empty bottles that her mother would be drinking as she would lie passed out on the floor. And she said, somewhere along the way as a teenager, I think she's all of 17 now, she said, somewhere along the way I had to discover that love can triumph over bitterness. And I thought, wow. I asked her what she wanted to do at Belmont course of study. She said, I want to do interior design. I said, why? And she said, because I want to create spaces that can feel a sense of embrace and home and love, whether it's for my own children or for other people, to feel that sense of God's love through spaces. I thought, wow, this is amazing. And then I thought of this passage from Luke 7. Here's a young person who's suffered much who's endured much and has discovered the power of God's love and God's forgiveness in an extraordinary way. And that's what forgiveness is about. It isn't just about canceling the past so we can go back to the same old, same old. It's about experiencing what Mary experiences in the tomb in John 20. That vision of the risen Christ that sets us free to go and say, I have seen the Lord. That passage from Jonah that Donovan read just a few moments ago, I I love the passage. He didn't quote the same translation I often like to to cite. The one I like to cite, uh, it's not very well known. It's, It's where Jonah, after he says, God, I knew you were a God who was ready to relent from punishing and abounding in steadfast love and full of grace and mercy, dead gum you. Most translations don't have the dead gum you. But that's what Jonah's really saying. Because too many of us, like the Pharisee, are grumpy that God would be that kind of forgiving God, that God would transform the lives of others, that God might even forgive me and you and turn our world upside down to discover that power of forgiveness and to see the opportunities for new life. Well, there's another way to put it. It goes back, my father grew up in Kentucky many years ago. And back in the days before digital, when there was regular old-fashioned newspapers, and if you wanted to place an advertisement, you had to go down to the newspaper and actually talk to a living person who would place the ad for you and tell you how many characters and the price of the ad would be based on how many words there were in the ad you were placing. This man went down, he walks into the Louisville Courier Journal, and he, he says to the man there, he says, I'd like to place an ad for my wife's lost cat. The man starts to write down, says, could you describe the cat? He gives a description for the cat. Then the advertising man says, would you like to offer a reward 
for the lost cat. Sometimes that helps people uh, go looking more and, and encourages them to, to try to find the cat. And the man says, yes, I'd be glad to do that. So he says, uh, what would, reward would you like to offer? And he said, $10,000. The ad man pauses and kind of gasps, and he says, $10,000? You realize that if, if the cat is returned, uh, you'll be liable legally to pay the full reward. The man said, oh, I'm not worried about that. You see, I discovered the cat was dead two days ago. Well, the moral of the story is when you know what you know, you can afford to be extravagant. And the truth of this story in Luke's Gospel and the truth of the Gospel overall is because we know what we know of God's love for us in Jesus Christ, that God forgives, that God wants us to live the life abundant for which we were created. Because we know that, because we have that Easter hope and have that sense of Pentecostal power, we can afford to be extravagant with our lives, with our resources, with our relationships, with our vision for the future. We don't have to be on our heels leaning back, wondering about what God is doing or if there's a God or whether that God is full of love. We know what we know because of God's love in Jesus Christ. And so we can afford to be extravagant to anoint Jesus' feet, to pour out all that we are and all that we do in service to God, to be the kind of people who go out when there's somebody passed out on the floor from a form of addiction in the midst of hatred and political polarization, to build bridges, to be agents of hope and forgiveness and love, to embrace in new ways. Father Greg Boyle is a Jesuit priest who started Homeboy Industries out in South Central L.A., an extraordinary guy. He's been getting kids out of gangs and into jobs for now almost 30 years. Amazing stories. He's written three books, all of which are well worth reading. But it was in his middle book, Barking to the Choir. He's got great titles because he gets them from his homeboys and his homegirls. And he's talking in the middle book about when his life changed. And he said it moved, his life changed when he discovered five words in the book of Acts. And then he cites the five words, and I thought to myself when I read it, that's not in the book of Acts. I've taught on the book of Acts. I've written about the book of Acts. I've led retreats on the book of Acts. I don't remember those five words, except he put a chapter and verse. So I looked it up. Sure enough, there are those five words in the book of Acts. Acts 2.43, it says, And awe came upon everyone. It's about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And awe came upon everyone. He said it changed his life. Because before he realized he had been a person who focused on judgment. And now he was going to focus on awe. Now, if there's anybody I know who could justify sitting in judgment, it's Greg Boyle. I mean, he goes and says mass in prisons 
and he encounters people who've committed horrific crimes, rape and murder and robbery and all sorts of gang killings and all sorts of other things. So that there's plenty of reason for him to sit in judgment. And yet he said when he moved from sitting in judgment to looking at another person with awe at how God was at work in their life and all the things they were carrying and how he could be an agent of God's love to help them be inspired in a new way. He said his whole life and perspective changed from judgment to awe. That's what the Pharisee discovers in Jesus' story. It's what Jesus is trying to tell us through the story of the woman who loved much. Because Greg Boyle knows what he knows, he can afford to be extravagant and minister and help to change people's lives. You see, we shouldn't be feeling like the two of clubs. Because like in the game of hearts, the two of clubs being the first card played, God wants you to be the first card played. God wants you to live a life of extravagant forgiveness to others, of extravagant love with others. Wants this church to be a beacon of hope and love and light and forgiveness in a broken and hurting and divided world. Well, there's another way to put it. It comes from the days when the Raiders still played in Oakland. I grew up in Denver, been a lifelong Denver Bronco fan. Back in the days when the Raiders were in Oakland, they had a quarterback named Kenny Stabler. He was an obnoxious quarterback (laughs) because he'd usually be drunk the night before a game. He'd show up to the game and he'd kind of be hung over for most of the first half and into the third quarter, and you'd get hope that, you know, today's the day we're going to win. He had receivers named Cliff Branch and Fred Bolitnikoff, and it didn't matter how many touchdowns the Broncos were up going into the fourth quarter. That fourth quarter would come, and Stabler would work his magic, and he'd throw a few touchdown passes and just rip our hearts out. Well, one day in spring training when Stabler was a the quarterback, they were training at Santa Rosa, California, near Jack London's home. And the writer for Sports Illustrated was getting tired of just covering the training camp and its routines. And so he went and took a tour of Jack London's home, and he found some words that were written there that Jack London had penned, and he wrote them down. And after practice that day, he asked Stabler for an interview, and Stabler said, sure. And they sat down, and the writer said, I'd like to read these words from Jack London and then find out what you think of them, what they mean to you. Stabler said, fine. So the writer read these words of London. I would rather be ashes than dust. I would rather be a superb meteor, every atom of me in magnificent glow, than a sleepy and permanent planet. I would rather be a fire raging with light and heat than to simply have never been a flame at all. The purpose of man is to live, not merely to exist. I shall use my time. The writer said, Kenny, what does that mean to you? Stabler thought about it for a moment, and then he said, throw deep. Well, my friends... We can't afford to settle for being the two of clubs unless it's in the game of hearts. 
We can't afford to be on our heels discouraged. We can't afford to act like a Pharisee or to be grumpy like Jonah. We're called like the woman Mary after the resurrection to go forth and tell everyone, I have seen the Lord. We're called, because we know what we know, to live lives of extravagant forgiveness. Let's go forth from this place and throw deep.